On the morning of September 11, 2001, a call went out to a 911 dispatcher from a man named Kevin Cosgrove. He's trapped in the northwest corner of the 105th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. And he's shaking. And he's upset. And his voice is full of desperation. Cosgrove had gone to work like any other day as a senior executive for a multinational financial services firm. But there was no way he could know what he was about to walk into. Dense, pungent smoke is filling the building at this point, and Cosgrove is pleading with the dispatcher trying to find out when help will arrive. And the dispatcher tries to comfort him with platitudes like, help is on the way, sir, hang in there. And then Cosgrove responds, quote, you can say that you're in an air conditioned building. We're not ready to die, unquote. Not long before his call, a Boeing 767 was deliberately crashed into the south face of the South Tower at 500 miles per hour at 9.03 a.m. The plane struck through floor 77 and 85. Cosgrove was on the 105th floor. He had tried to make it down a stairwell, but the smoke was too thick at the 79th floor, so he had to turn back. We could hardly imagine the languid and noxious smell of millions of tons of cement, electrical wire, computers, steel, drywall, window glass, and bodies incinerated by fires feeding on tens of thousands of liters of jet fuel all smoldering into a smell of death and plastic. And there are reports that the heat was so high that people stood on their desks to avoid the floors because they were just too hot. And then there's an overwhelming torrent of sound. The top part of Tower 2 folded in on itself and began to collapse. And the last words Cosgrove was able to utter was, Oh God. And the call abruptly ends. And he is one of the 2,977 people who died in the terrorist attacks on America that day. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler. And today I have a story from recent history that I'm sure everyone has heard before. But you may have never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it. This is a story of trauma and numbing grief and national tragedy and one of the most terrible days in modern American history. This is the Humanity Archive podcast. Let's get into it. Context matters. If you don't know what led to an event, you won't know why it's happening and how it affects you and your life. And the Humanity Archive brings you the full story, the story that isn't fully captured in the glossy, superficial stuff you find in textbooks or on the History Channel or Discovery or CNN. I really do like those shows, too, but I like to go deeper, subterranean into the depths of the human soul. 
I want to make you think and question and learn and grow and feel. And so I'm asking you to become a financial supporter of the Humanity Archive right now so I can continue sharing not just what happened, but why. So I need you to pause this episode and head over to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or your local bookstore online and search the Humanity Archive, recovering the soul of black history from a whitewashed American myth. That is the name of my debut history book, and it's twenty eight ninety nine. And what you're going to get out of that is a narrative based book, just like the podcast where I interject thoughts and questions of my own personal experience into the history. It's not a dry history read. And your pre-order is going to make a huge difference when you make a move right now, because that will let the publisher know and the booksellers know that they need to put this up on the shelves front and center for everyone to see. And you can help continue this Humanity Archive movement. And this book is going to give you a much deeper understanding of race globally and in America and an understanding of black history like you've never had before. So pick it up. And lastly, if you want to become a sustaining donor of this important work, head over to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive and sign up to make a monthly donation starting at a dollar. Now let's get into the September 11th attacks. More than a billion people watched the destruction of 9-11 on that morning in 2001 unfold live on television and I was one of them. If you're old enough to recall, I wonder if you remember where you were when it all happened. I was a freshman in high school and I remember being in an art class and we were working with paper mache and the assignment was to craft an anthropomorphic animal, you know, an animal with human characteristics. And I was a big boxing fan at the time. So I was crafting a tiger as a heavyweight boxer. I was trying to make something fierce. And I think it ended up coming out really whimsical and goofy like Tony the Tiger with red boxing gloves on and blue trunks. I remember standing there and crafting this tiger with thick, gooey, slathering newspaper pulp on my hands and the intercom comes on saying something terrible has happened and my teacher rushes over to the TV and turns on CNN, which flashed a headline. It said, breaking news, World Trade Center disaster. And at this point, the reports were unconfirmed, but they were gathering that a plane crashed into the North Tower at the World Trade Center. It was just so surreal and scary. One reporter just said, good Lord, there are no words and That was at 8.46 a.m. And then at 9.03, we literally saw the second plane thunder into the second tower. And that is when everyone knew that this was an orchestrated attack. This was no accident. And I can only imagine if people had cell phones back then, like we do now with video and everything, where people can record and post live on social media in real time. But that wasn't really a thing yet. So this live news coverage on television was even something like we had just never seen before in real time watching this sort of thing. This wasn't a norm back then. I thought long and hard about how I wanted to cover this event in our history because it has been covered from a thousand different angles. People talk about 9-11 and how it changed war. They talk about the moral panic of the aftermath of 9-11 and the criminalization of immigrants. They talk about discouraging terrorism and al-Qaeda and nationalism and patriotism and George W. Bush. I mean, there are so many ways to look at this, but I wanted to focus on the suffering and the heroism and the humanity in the story. And a lot of people would probably crucify me for that. They would say, well, yeah, 9-11, but. But look at all the innocent people America has terrorized over the years. And I understand the place of pain that often comes from. But how emotionally callous can you be when people do this? I have to wonder, did you really care about any victims in the first place? 
It's a red herring. It's a deflection. Like in time, we can have a dialogue about all victims who find themselves in the death throes of power, whether it's from a terrorist organization or a national government. But it is so morally bankrupt to me because I don't think, again, people who do this care about anybody suffering. They're just trying to prove a point. Now, I feel very strongly about the aftermath of 9-11 and the way politicians use fear and Islamophobia to engage in the never ending wars on terror in the Middle East and North Africa. After the attacks, I could talk about Osama bin Laden or how people become radicalized in the first place or the flawed communication systems that slowed the efforts of first responders. For instance, the police had put many helicopters in the air during the events of 9-11. And from that angle, they got advanced warnings of the collapses. But here's the thing. The police used different radio channels from the fire department. And since this information wasn't readily available, many firefighters and first responders were telling people to stay put when they would have been telling them to evacuate. So there are whole books on what went wrong, how people could have responded better, or even how 9-11 could have been prevented. I could dive into all the conspiracy theories that were super popular back in the day. Still pretty popular now. You might remember the phrase inside job in spite of government agencies and independent engineers describing the physics of how the towers came down. Many said the planes that flew into the Twin Towers could not have brought them down. They said it had to be caused by strategically placed explosives. But I don't want to talk any more about any of that in this episode. I want to focus on the lives lived and those affected and try to wrestle with the hope and the despair. And there's so many people still alive who lived through the horror of that day. And we might question if the story needs to be retold. But I think that now it has been over two decades. So there's a whole generation of people alive now who have no personal knowledge of what happened. And for that reason, I do think these stories need to be told and retold for every generation. On the Sunday before September 11th, Shirley Henderson had a dream. Or perhaps we might call it a nightmare that turned out to be eerily prophetic. In this dream, she was in a cave and she was digging and there were others digging around her. And she looked up to see a bright light beckoning her to come into another corridor of the cave. And when she got there, she saw her baby son lying there in a fetal position. And the reason the dream was so prophetic was because her husband, Ronnie L. Henderson, was in Tower One. He was a veteran firefighter with Engine Company 279. He would decided to become a firefighter back in the late 1970s because he wanted to knock down the racial barriers, keeping black people out of the fire department so that black people could be better represented as the faces of first responders. You know, 9-11, he found himself heroically breaking through barriers to get into the World Trade Center to save lives. But because of her dream of digging through the rubble in that cave searching, Shirley would go on to say, quote, the minute that building went down, I felt a part of me die, unquote. The plane that had hit the North Tower tipped its wings just before it impacted the building, cutting through seven floors like a knife to butter and significantly damaging columns. Ronnie's engine was located just across the Brooklyn Bridge from Manhattan, so it was one of the first vehicles to be dispatched to the scene. Engine Company 279 lost four firefighters that day. Ronnie L. Henderson was one of them. He would never emerge from the rubble. He was a man who loved his wife and children. He was 52 years old, a religious man. They said he always had a Bible in reach. So, surely said she at least found solace in the thought that he was now in the kingdom of God. 
And we'll talk more about what was happening on the ground. But what about in the sky? Some harrowing messages were being sent from those hijacked planes and calls were being made from air phones that were on the back of the plane seats and from cell phones. Most of those calls were to loved ones. A 39-year-old man named Brian David Sweeney was a passenger on flight 17, and he left a voicemail for his wife, Julie, a mere four minutes before his plane crashed into the South Tower. He said, quote, Jules, this is Brian. Listen, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked. If things don't go well and it's not looking good, I just want you to know that I absolutely love you. I want you to do good. Go have good times. Same to my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you. And I'll see you when you get there. Unquote. Stuff is heartbreaking. And what strikes me about some of these calls was how calm a lot of these people were, you know. I wonder what I would have done had that been me up there. What would I have said if I knew it was my last phone call to my loved ones? But I think there is some beauty here. I mean, you're on a hijacked airplane like 31,000 feet in the air and you're plummeting and realizing that this is the end. And in that moment, not thinking of yourself at all, not thinking of your demise at all, thinking of your loved ones, showing compassion for your loved ones, trying to comfort your loved ones selflessly. We saw that over and over again. C.C. Lyles was a flight attendant on United Airlines Flight 93. And in fight or flight mode, the passengers on her airline apparently put it up to a vote about whether or not to fight back against the hijackers as a group. And they decided to do so. Now, their plane was headed to the nation's capital, perhaps the White House, when it crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. So the passengers did not regain control of the plane, but who knows how many lives they saved because of their heroism. And just imagine the repercussions had that plane hit the White House. But that plane crash did kill all 44 people on board, including the four hijackers. CeCe's phone call went like this. Hi, baby. You have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you that I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, baby. I don't know what to say. There's three guys. They've hijacked the plane. I'm trying to become. We're turned around and I heard that there's planes that have been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again. I love you. Bye. Unquote. Again, the selfless love. Back on the ground, we encounter Lieutenant Adrian Walsh, who served with Ladder 20 and had been with the FDNY since 1997. She rose through the ranks to become only the second woman in the department's history to be assigned to Special Operations Command of Squad Company 18. So she urgently rushes toward the towers after they've been hit. As a lieutenant, the duty of her leadership role required her to be on the front line to encounter any situation and then delegate what needed to be done to respond to a disaster. And when she could finally get to the scene, the South Tower had already fallen and emergency services were stretched so thin there really wasn't a lot of people to delegate to. She had to jump right in and remember Tower 1 or the North Tower was hit at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time and collapsed at 10.28 a.m. while Tower 2 or the South Tower was hit at 9.03 a.m. and collapsed at 9.59 a.m. So the South Tower collapsed first. Here's what Walsh had to say. Quote, I remember when you got to City Hall. It's almost as if you entered. 
It's almost as if it was a curtain and you walked into a curtain. The sky disappeared. There was air and bright light on this side and there was just gray dust that you could barely see on this side. It was just like walking through a theatrical curtain. There's six inches of dust on the ground. We're parked across from the plaza and I remember getting out. I had no mask because our rig was already down there. Our guys were already down there. So I went to the back of the rig to try to see if there was another mask, another air pack for me. And I remember going around to the rig, around the back side of the rig. And as I got to the back side of the rig, I looked up and I don't know why I looked up because I didn't hear anything. But I saw what I can only describe as almost like a tornado hurtling toward me. Just this cloud of dust that had to be over 100 feet in the air and it was literally circling and it was just bearing down. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that and anything move that fast. And I turned around and yelled, run, Cap, run, because the captain was behind me. And we looked up. We all took off down the block. And I thought, I honestly thought in the midst of all that, if this is going to come down and it's going to fall all at once as a building, if I could beat the cloud, I'll beat the building. And I said to myself as I turned and started to run, I'm not going to beat this cloud. It's just moving too fast. Unquote. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that most people were running away from the towers as they were hit. And even after they collapsed and your DNA level survival instincts would be telling you to go, 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 go as far away as possible. All while sirens are screeching and people are screaming and the sun is blocked out by a plume of dust. But here you have these first responders. Like Adrian, like Ronnie. Who would go on to throw themselves into the disaster. That to me is the definition of heroism. Defenders of life, protectors of life, bravery and fortitude and action and service to human life. 343 firefighters died along with many police officers and EMS workers on that day. A lot more were left with debilitating illness and death from the particles in the smoke plumes that destroy their lungs. Lieutenant Adrian Walsh went on to talk about how there were all of these fires to put out from burning debris, but the water mains were broken. So you'd go from hydrant to hydrant to find pressure, checking on the injured along the way. And in the rubble, a lot of things were disintegrated. But then you'd go past something like a desk fully intact and realize that the person who used to sit in it was likely dead. And in all of that surreal confusion, having the presence of mind to help others is simply amazing to me. But on another note, there are a series of photographs by photojournalist Bolivar Arellano, who had been lifted four feet into the air, elevated by the explosions from a tower he was nearby. He passed out, and when he came to, a steel beam that had penetrated the building he was in was inches from his head. He barely escaped death. He overheard another survivor ask, quote, have you seen the photographer? I'm sure he's dead, unquote. And then everybody was happy to see he was alive when he walked out. His leg was busted and bloodied, but he decided to keep on walking on, hobbling on and photograph. And he took a photo of a bleeding woman. There are some photos from 9-11 that are especially haunting. One picture he took was of a man jumping from the tower. And then another picture later of three other men running past the slumped over body of a person who jumped. And I'm not even sure if jump is the right word for it, is it? Those people were forced into that situation and chose a quick death rather than a horrible one. 
Imagine you're on one of these upper floors. Not only are you rocked to your core by the impact of the plane, but then there's this inferno. Because when they are full, Boeing holds around 24,000 gallons of jet fuel, which is pure kerosene. So temperatures soared up as high as 1,000 degrees Celsius or 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And the floors are weakening beneath you and you wouldn't have known, but columns dislodged the fireproofing around the steel columns holding up the building. And so there is an inward bowing of the perimeter columns as the building is collapsing minute by minute. And even if the sprinklers were working, they couldn't have put out that kerosene fire. And you have no way downstairs because they're blocked by debris or you can't make it. And your skin is blistering and cracking and turning red from the heat. And you feel the cool breeze from outside because the window in front of you is shattered. At that point, you realize there's no chance of survival. And I want to be clear on this because these people did not commit suicide. They were murdered. They were going to die either way. And it was a matter of the agonizing decision of how to die. And so they decided to escape by going over the edge, choosing an instantaneous death rather than burning alive. What did they think in those 10 or so last seconds, I wonder, as they were compelled by gravity to hit the ground? Many researchers have estimated that around 200 people fell to their deaths. And remember, these are 110 story buildings, and that is about 1,362 feet. And from skydiving, we know that it takes about 10 seconds to fall your first 1,000 feet. After that, you hit terminal velocity, and then it turns into about 5.5 seconds per thousand feet you're falling, so roughly 10 seconds. Perhaps the more famous photograph of the many falling bodies from the tower, there's one called The Falling Man. You can look up, and it is a photograph taken by Associated Press photographer Richard Drew. And I can never forget this image as the man in black pants and a white shirt is plummeting down, not flailing, but straight like a perfect spear. He's perfectly bisecting the North and South Tower, which are behind him. The New York Times ran it on September 12, 2001, and the photo's caption read, quote, A person falls headfirst after jumping from the North Tower of the World Trade Center. It was a horrific sight that was repeated in the moments after the plane struck the towers, unquote. Many people were outraged and appalled, and many other news outlets who shared this photo and headline took it down. Perhaps it was just too soon to run frightful photos like this, but these things are a little easier to reflect on with the passage of time. So in 2021, a journalist named Tom Junod wrote another take on what the photo meant when he said, quote, although he has not chosen his fate, he appears to have. In his last instance of life, he embraced it. If he were not falling, he might very well be flying. He appears relaxed, hurtling through the air. He appears comfortable in the grip of unimaginable motion. He does not appear intimidated by gravity's divine suction or by what awaits him. His arms are by his side, only slightly out rigged. His left leg is bent at the knee, almost casually. His white shirt or jacket or frock is billowing free of his black pants. Some people who look at the picture, he's referring again to the falling man. Some people who look at the picture see stoicism, willpower, a portrait of resignation. Others see something else, something discordant and thereby terrible. Freedom. There is something almost rebellious in the man's posture as though once faced with the inevitability of death, he decided to get on with it as though he were a missile bent on attaining his own end. He is 15 seconds past 941 a.m. The moment the picture is taken. And the clutches of pure physics accelerating at a rate of 32 feet per second squared. 
He will soon be traveling at upwards of 150 miles per hour, and he's upside down. In the picture, he is frozen. His life outside the frame, he drops and keeps dropping until he disappears, unquote. We'll never know the full details of how so many others died inside the towers or on the planes or at the Pentagon. Thinking about all this brings me back to that age-old philosophical question. Is it rational to fear death? I mean, we are a death-denying culture. No one wants to face death, but it is the greatest inevitability of our lives. Colonel Marilyn Willis, a congressional affairs officer who wrestled with death, survived the attack on the Pentagon where 184 people died. And she came back to work 13 days later and said, quote, when I came back, the worst thing was the smell. You could smell the fumes. You could smell the burning bodies. You could smell the burning wires. You could smell it all. I walked down the hallways and I would think that I saw ghosts. Unquote. And as we talk about so often here, the past is not the past. The emotional side of this history still haunts so many people. Liz Alderman had a son named Peter who died in the North Tower and who was last seen at breakfast at a conference in the North Tower. He'd sent out an email at 925 a.m. about the intense smoke on the 106th floor. And then he vanished. His death was a mystery. And his mother says, quote, the most important thing is I'll never know. I won't know how much he suffered and I won't know how he died. I travel back into that tower a lot and I try to imagine, but there is no imagining. Unquote. There are some people who will never know. Indeed, there are a lot of people who will never know. As of 2021, there were 1,106 victims whose remains had still not been identified or found. I mean, think about that. There are hundreds of people still hoping that detectives will finally come to their home to say that their dearly departed loved ones have been identified and hopefully bring some kind of closure like they did for the family of a woman named Dorothy Morgan, the 1,646th World Trade Center victim to be identified through DNA testing. She was an insurance broker in the North Tower. One article about this ongoing search through the remains of the 9-11 victims reads as quote. For 20 years, the medical examiner's office has quietly conducted the largest missing persons investigation ever undertaken in the nation. Testing and retesting the 22,000 body parts painstakingly recovered from the wreckage after the attacks. Scientists are still testing the vast inventory of unidentified remains for a genetic connection to the 1,106 victims, roughly 40% of the ground zero death toll, who are still without a match so that their families can reclaim the remains for a proper burial, unquote. Now, I'm not sure that telling someone you found the charred remains of their mother or husband or sister can really bring closure. And as the daughter of Dorothy Morgan, Nakia Morgan pointed out, quote, at this point, what is it that they're sifting through? Unquote. But I do applaud the efforts of all the scientists who are painstakingly working on this to this day. But I'm not sure if I would want them to continue looking. If it was one of my family members, there are others who would, I know, but it would be a painful thing. But even on another note, what is closure anyway? I think it is about wanting pain to end, the feeling of loss to end, the feeling of grief to end. And as someone who has lost people near and dear to me, I can say that there really is no such thing as closure. I feel like that's a pop psychology word to make us feel good. We never get over the loss of those we hold dear. And I think that's okay. Would you really want to? What we can hope for, though, is this. That the razor sharp edges of grief will wear down over time, over the course of time. And while we can never fully escape that suffering, we can learn to manage it. It is impossible to cover all the entirety of September 11th. 
the shock, the fear, the anger and momentous sadness. And I can't help but keep thinking about all the heroic deeds. There are just so many overwhelming number of stories. You can talk about 50,000 people who worked in the Twin Towers. They all have stories, all the New Yorkers with families there who witnessed it or who were right up the street from it or right up the block from it. Kids who grew up with it. And then you had 23,000 that worked at the Pentagon. So many stories to tell, like Benjamin Clark, a former Marine and chef at the Fiduciary Trust Company. He's credited with saving hundreds of lives. He made sure that everybody on the 96th floor safely exited the building. He then paused on the 78th floor to assist a woman in a wheelchair, and he died when the building collapsed while helping her. What about William Rodriguez? A maintenance worker in the basement of the North Tower when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the tower. He had the keys to all the emergency exits, so he bravely led firefighters up the stairs, unlocking the doors as they climbed. And in this way, he helped to save hundreds of people. But in doing this, he lost his own life. What about Ronald Buka, whose body was found in the rubble of the South Tower? They think he placed his coat protectively around several civilians, for it was later found still wrapped around their bodies. There's so many stories of those who weren't even at the towers, who ran to the towers to help. So, yes, 9-11 was a national atrocity in American history, but even more. And what I wanted to highlight in this episode was the very personal catastrophe of all those who died and all those who lost loved ones. So I want to end on a moment of silence and remembrance for the victims and send love and goodwill to the remaining families. And that is the end of this very deep, painful episode of the Humanity Archive podcast. If you want to see my show notes and sources, head over to the humanityarchive.com and just search through my podcast and you will find the podcast page for every episode. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Humanity Archive. And if you go over to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive, you can support this important work of telling the human side of history. One, two, five dollars, however much you can afford or are willing to support. Thank you all. I appreciate you all. And I'll see you in the next episode.